Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we discuss part two of Lenin's State and Revolution and reflect on Marxian state theory, relations with anarchists, and the legacy of the Russian Revolution. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa. Joining me tonight is Grant. Hey, Grant from Red Party. Lexi. Lexi from Red Party brought to you by Alchemy brand vape cartridges. Uh, Patrick. I have really nothing funny to say. So, yeah, I'm here from Red Party. And Donald. Hey, it's uh, Donald Parkinson, also known as Mr. Legalized Kratom by the International Communist Current. So tonight we are talking about the second half of State and Revolution. I think Donald prepared some notes, so I will turn this over to him. Oh, Dan, turn it over to me. I don't really have um, extensive notes prepared, I'll be honest, but there's a lot to talk about here. And um, I think last time I got up to Chapter 3, so we're on like Chapter 4. He does a lot of um, stuff from Angles, actually. There's a lot of good quotes about Angles. He starts with the housing question. But then he talks about the controversy with the anarchists, and I thought that was more interesting. A lot of Marx's ideas on the state came through debating anarchists. I just wonder if anyone had any thoughts about that in general, like the, the general debate between anarchism and Marxism in regards to the state and what kind of is relevant today about it. I think the whole attraction of Marxism is wrestling with reformism on the one hand and anarchism on the other. I came to Marxism looking for a third option. I think it's also an interesting question in that there are serious differences and ideas about the state that need to be worked out between Marxists and anarchists. But there's also a lot of similar ground that gets lost in semantics. I mean, I remember Donald, I think it was you who mentioned last time, a lot of anarchists look at state and revolution as a text of Lenin trying to dupe them into becoming Marxists. I really think there is something to that, you know, when you sort of break it down. Yeah, I wouldn't call it so much duping people like anarchists and becoming Marxists, but he is kind of talking to this like kind of anti-status libertarian trend and that was probably popular in Russia at the time, relatively. I think you said something about it sort of being branded that way. Yeah. And yeah, it's not even brand that way. He definitely is trying to win anarchists over to the Marxist position. But he's also like using that as a stick to beat the revisionist with because their ideas on the state are inconsistent with revolutionary Marxism. That's interesting as well. He's debating the anarchists, and he's also debating the revisionists using kind of similar arguments. It's interesting. From what I can tell, basically the anarchist conception of like sort of the dictatorship of the proletariat is fundamentally the same as the Marxists, except they don't really call it a state so much. Maybe that's a bit of a simplification, but yeah. The state, I mean, has the potential to be more of a proper dictatorship with an anarchist transition, because the whole point of a dictatorship of the proletariat is that it's a, it's a class state. And in the same way that if we accept the idea that the society that we're living in is some kind of democracy, let's say we do, then we also have all of the repressive features of this democratic state to bundle into the concept of democracy. Having a democracy for the poor, for the proletariat, I mean, Lenin actually puts democracy for the poor. If we have a democracy for the proletariat, those repressive apparatus will be democratically controlled by the mass and not by the class minority. It's interesting, though, because most anarchists I know sort of wouldn't fall into the belief that you can abolish capitalism overnight. And so it also does get back to the this difference definitionally Marxists looking at the state if you have a class society for a Marxist you have a state just those things are sort of not separable whereas for an anarchist a state you know oftentimes I see it defined as hierarchy or something like that and I think the, the concept of hierarchy is something that needs some uh, I don't know if deconstruction is the word but it definitely needs some analysis as well 
Well, I think that uh, the anarchists define the state as in terms of centralization versus decentralization. And one of the interesting parts of this is that Lenin is like, well, I mean, well, you want really a, the self-government of localities, but like in a strong centralized republic, it's actually most effective this the kind of like self-government. So like it's not either or the other really. And I think kind of making it like about decentralization really weakens the anarchist argument, at least. Well, well, Lenin gets into issues of like managing an advanced industrial society, which, you know, I don't feel like a lot of anarchist like theory of revolution gets into that beyond like maybe councilism. It, it always comes down to like an interlocking series of councils at every level that will all communicate with each other in this horizontal manner. And then we'll come to some kind of collective consensus through you know, a series of debates and so on and so forth. It seems to be the kind of vision. Um, a lot of the vision, I also get like the impression of, because I don't know if you guys ever saw that movie, um, Libertarias, where it kind of just portrays like the Spanish revolution is a bunch of people like riding around in trucks and waving being like, yeah, we're coming to get your stuff, bourgeoisie. Like, yeah, exactly. It'll, it'll be this like spontaneous, I don't know, hippie booze fest or something, or like occupy on steroids or I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's going to be one massive drum circle. Like there's that quote by Emma Goldman. Like if the revolution doesn't have dancing, then it's not my revolution. I mean, can, can we like dance a little later? You know, once we're done suppressing the class enemy, I don't know. Esto es una revolución, no una fiesta. Y alguien tiene que pagar los platos rotos. ¿Qué quieres? Tú sabes por qué nuestra bandera es roja y negra. Roja por la lucha y negra porque el espíritu humano es oscuro. Viva la revolución libertaria! There's no need to sort of create a dichotomy there. We can dance while letting the heads roll, you know? Well, kind of on the anarcho-syndicalists, they kind of make an argument that their revolution will be like a bloodless revolution. If, if we just have like a general strike and get everyone to go on strike, we could peacefully take power basically because, you know, we would be withdrawing our labor collectively. Or not even take power, but take the means of production without having to take power. And I think that's like the big difference between Marxism and anarchism is that Marxism understands that you have to take political power before you seize the means of production. And like that collectivization comes after that. And it has to happen according to the material circumstances that allow for it. And uh, the whole debate between federalism and centralism. And he kind of says that federalism is reactionary. In a way, federalism is almost a way to kind of like incorporate nationalism into the kind of anarcho-communist future, basically. But it's not really nationalism, but it's still like this federated body that's, it's like localism more so, and communes that have this kind of like decentralized relation with each other. Decentralization could be like a feature of like a higher stage of communism. When we all had like our magical, like, you know, cold fusion energy generators and replicators. Replicators. Yeah, exactly. You could have these completely like super decentralized system, but I feel like, you know, for managing and planning like the total productive capacity of mankind it needs to be centralization on some level if obviously not in like the stalinist soviet sense but in the sense of you need to basically plan production with an eye towards how the system as a whole operates i think it's important to disrupt that notion of centralization is authority, authoritarianism, tyranny, decentralization is freedom. Last time we talked about state and revolution, I think it was about decentralized nature of the cultural revolution and the ways that went wrong. And then, uh, you know, if you look at Murray Bookchin thought, basically libertarian garb, but fiefdom communism is what I call it. That's that's pretty accurate, I would say. Here's the quote I was looking for. It's Here's London. It's extremely important to note that Engels, armed with facts, disproved by a most precise example the prejudice which is very widespread, particularly among petty bourgeois Democrats, that a federal republic necessarily means a greater amount of freedom than a centralized republic. But this is wrong. It is disproved by the facts cited by Engels regarding the centralized French Republic of 1792 to 98 in the Federal Swiss Republic. The really democratic centralized republic gave more freedom than the Federal Republic. In other words, the greatest amount of local, regional, and other freedom known in history was accorded by a centralized and not by a federalized republic. And he also says there's not enough attention in our party propaganda that we need this kind of centralized rather than federal republic. 
I guess, yeah, there's this fear of centralism that creates kind of a gap between the anarchists and the Marxists. That it could be solved, I think. It's just a lot of semantic and, and there's a lot of semantic dogmatisms, I guess, that people are going well, to cling on to both sides. And I, I got to imagine this is like a particularly pressing issue in Russia at the time, not only because the anarchists had a pretty longstanding base there, but also because, you know, the problem of the peasantry, I could see how having like a federal system could very easily, you know, end in this kind of, you know, uh, sort of peasant utopian, uh, sort of non-industrial, uh, non-progressive social system, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's basically kind of the problem that the Bolsheviks find themselves in is that they have to govern and the majority of the population is peasants. So they have to govern for peasants. But that's kind of a whole other story. <laughs> yeah, to kind of bring it back to the semantic dogmatism, you know, you know, Marxists and anarchists are basically the two flavors of people that take seriously the idea that you can get rid of the state. And Marxists have a problem in which we say, okay, yeah, we can get rid of the state. We just need one more state. We just got to build one more, and it won't even really be a state, but sometimes we'll call it a state and sometimes we won't. But that'll be the last one, we promise. There's something about this that's a hard sell. I mean, it's obvious that people came up with it in a Hegelian framework, affirming the proletariat, you know, building a state in order to get rid of classes and the definition of humanity by classes, you know. The entire discourse about the dangers of, you know, reifying something when you're trying to destroy it. The history of Marxism bears this out. And even though I'm totally on board with the dictatorship of the proletariat, but we do have to work that problem out. I think the legitimate point that the anarchists do have is that there are forms of hierarchy and oppression that are not simply just wage labor in the exploitation. And so simply nationalizing the means of production and creating like a centrally planned economy doesn't actually, you know, fix everything. Like, and also it counts for the syndicalists. I mean, they kind of think this as well, though, that, you know, we, that if you just transfer ownership of the factories to the workers, then that will solve everything. But there's, there's aspects of pre-class, I mean, not pre-class, but pre-capitalist class society that still impacts capitalism, like, you know, patriarchal relations in the family, for example, is a classic one. That's not necessarily something you solve just by abolishing capital. You have to transcend capitalism. And that means, ultimately for Lenin, he's just saying that means we're going to move beyond the state at some point, but we're not going to immediately abolish the state, but we're, we're going to create a workers' state, a workers' republic. And that's going to be the means through which we finally dismantle the state. And the means through, through which we dismantle the state is going to be socializing world production. I mean, we've, we've talked a bit about how the sort of centralism we're talking about is, in reality, something of a balance between centralism and self-government of localities. But to make international level changes in the distribution of wealth... I just don't see how that could be done in a localist way without simply reinforcing the current distribution of resources along sort of racist, especially, lines. This vision of communism as decentralized, what Engels calls cantons, has the problem of the anarchy of you know international state system, I guess. But in this case, the states would just be very, very small, and we wouldn't call them states. But the same difficult logic would still apply, even in a communist situation. Um, there would still be disputes between people in ways that we might call political now that are deprived of their class character that would still have to be resolved in some way. The reason why sort of having a state kind of makes sense from like the perspective of a revolution overall is because there's a general need to eliminate the opponents of like, the revolutionary class. There are genuine reactionaries who would try and stop the revolution, of course. The anarchists are going to have to deal with that situation. You're right. And the thing is, in Spain, you see them kind of, you know, they, they have this opportunity to seize power, basically. Like the workers of the CNT are in the streets and have power, but the CNT officially doesn't want to break with bourgeois constitutionalism and stays in the popular front with the Republicans and the Stalinists. It's because anarchists can't solve that problem of 
how do you create a new power that can, you know, consolidate authority against your revolutionary enemies? Like anarchist philosophy, where you're basically your philosophy is all hierarchy is inherently bad, is not going to be very suitable for that kind of task. And it's interesting because there was an anarchist group called the Friends of the Rudy who were within the CNT, and they did develop this concept of the revolutionary junta, which was basically their conception of the dictatorship of the proletariat. But they were a very small minority of the CNT of just like 7,000 people or so. It was a very large organization. But they did, they were anarchists who basically came with the Marxist conclusion that some kind of dictatorship of the proletariat is necessary. Was it Marxist or was it Blancist? I don't want to call it Blancist because they did have kind of this program of workers' councils coming to power and everything. Like it wasn't just a coup because they, you know, there obviously was like a, ch- a chance for real revolution, I think. It wasn't have yeah. Been yeah. You, you know what? I, 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 I think that there is really a distinct kind of anti-state Marxism that thinks that there's some way around this problem that is is somewhat distinct from anarchism. Although it's kind of like part of anarchism, but there's something that I would want to call Marxism. Like neo-Bakuninism? But not, <laughs> not necessarily like the people that take up all of Bakunin. Like you're talking about the, the Durati column, the followers of Durati, how they're approaching the correct conclusions. There's something about this where I would really rather take on people and adopt people into Marxism that come to the correct conclusions than hang on to the cultural baggage of where what kind of flag they were waving. Well, yeah, exactly. Like, in the end, like as Bismarck said, if the red and black unite, the heads of the ruling classes will rule. So, you know, like, we do want to win support from the anarchists. And it's clear that Lenin is trying to win support from the anarchists here by explaining, like, listen, we don't like the state. And ultimately, he, he also talks a lot about how they need a high level of democracy. And that basically, he kind of describes it as the state becomes so democratic that democracy itself withers away because the state has withered away. I can't wait to get to that section. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it, what's funny about this whole debate, too, no anarchist, Marxist, few liberals even would sincerely oppose the general use of force. Most people understand yeah. that that's how, in a class society, political power is wielded, in part. But it is wielded justly in the hands of the law, not just well, by the rabble who are threatening yeah, exactly, civilization. Because, yeah, like we're proposing, you know, rather than the rule of law, the rule of basically, you know, the organizations of the proletariat, you know, as they see fit to like secure their governance, which is radically different from the rule of law. You know, to go back to what I was saying about everybody believes in the use of force, every anarchist sort of movement has had to adopt violent tactics. Well, every anarchist movement that's ever found itself in a really promising revolutionary situation, I should say. I was going to say, these anarchist movements find themselves in that situation where they have a theoretical gap where they're not necessarily against force and violence, but it has to be in a decentralized way. Yeah, I've actually heard from anarchists before, though. I've heard the sort of argument that the reason these anarchist adaptations to reality that require, you know, mock nose army, militias, that sort of thing, is that that's sort of subjected to majority control. And so it's no longer hierarchically used. And that almost seems like the anarchist route to Marxism in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah, like I think a lot of anarchists could be one to Marxism if we, you know, emphasized our desire to control the bureaucrats and use democratic forms that are reliable and effective at, you know, maintaining, uh, controlling bureaucracy and trying to destroy it, basically. The anarchists have seen how decentralization works on the left. You end up with small groups of people with social capital controlling the way movements go, rather than in a sort of balanced, centralized system, you actually have organs for democracy to take place and mass decision-making to take place. Yeah. You just end up with little cults of personality, you know, tiny individual invisible dictatorships. If you judge the theory by, you know, really existing Marxist orgs in the United States, it's not a good report either. Well, it's really the same uh, problem, right? It's not really a different problem. 
it's it's the same problem, but the thing is, anarchists have this attitude that their ideology makes it different, and that they don't have these problems because their sure. ideology prevents it. Yeah. And that's just bullshit. Like here in Tampa, like the two like biggest anarcho activists, like they basically like have a lot of free time, and so they get the final say on what everything happens. So it's really just their like fiefdom. Like that's what happens when you don't have like formalized structures of democracy, and I think like a lot of anarchists who come into the movement with good intentions will probably be attracted to ideas that are superior to that, but still have that you know democratic core. Yeah, it's intrinsic to the critique of bourgeois democracy that you know the form of democracy is of course not sufficient to bring about you know, an actual consensual form of collective decision-making, but it's necessary. So um, I guess I wanted to talk about um, kind of how this all comes to fruition in the actual Bolshevik revolution and how this vision doesn't really happen, how this vision of like a multi-party Soviet democracy ends up not happening, even though Lenin, I don't think he's just trying to trick people. I think this is what he wants. He does want you know, democratic dictatorship of the proletariat, but, and the peasantry as well. But what happens is that you basically get this kind of red Bonapartism that develops in the civil war and very like, you know, non-democratic state structures kind of take over. So I don't know if anyone had any thoughts on that. Gilles Duvet in When Insurrections Die has a phrase that I really like. Um, the war devours the revolution. When you're in a situation where your attempted revolution becomes a civil war, um, you don't really have the number of people on your side that you need to prevent the fragile democratic institutions of, of a workers' movement from becoming subject to military discipline and kind of squished away. And that's what was interesting about your comments, Donald, about Lincoln and the, the ability to preserve certain democratic norms while suspending uh, freedom for certain reactionaries and, and crushing the slaveholder class. Speaks to the question of whether communist revolution wasn't possible in Russia alone. There would have had to been an influx of support from the rest of Europe um, in order for that to have succeeded. So in a situation where you don't even have fully blown capitalism and not only that, then you're immediately internationally isolated. 14 countries declare war on you and start sending armies. Um, the other parties that you're hoping to cooperate with, you know, declare open conflict on you. Um, yeah, because what, that's, that's a big part, I think, is the, the break between the SRs. Because at first, it's, it's a coalition. SRs end up becoming, you know, reactionary and turn on the Bolsheviks, partially because they're against the grain requisitions. And they're also against the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. And so it's interesting because I'm reading a book on the Russian Civil War, and it really shows, like, the early days of the war was basically a war to feed the cities. It was basically a war of the workers trying to get the peasants to give them the amount of grain that they needed to feed the cities. And basically, though, if we're going to say civil war inherently is going to create, like, a despotic regime, then we're fucked and we can't win communism because I can't see world communism happening without civil war breaking out. There's going to have to be a mass edge to the revolution, though. Can't be as much of a minority as as it turned out it, it was in Russia. Because of the problem with the peasantry, we won't have exactly the same problem of war communism that the Bolsheviks had. But we are going to be responsible for whatever conflict breaks out by the seizure of power. I mean, not that I'm going to do it, but you know what I'm saying. Communists have to take responsibility for what happens after the seizure of power. That's the whole point. Yeah. Like the Bolsheviks weren't really in a position where they had a choice on whether or not taking power was a good idea ultimately because there was always the threat of like reactionary whites. And, you know, fascism probably would have risen up some kind of horrific form of reactionary government would have risen up if they had not taken power because the parliamentarists were just completely weak. They were yeah, the, 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 the fucking provisional government was not going to last. If it wasn't the Bolsheviks, it would have been the most, you know, reactionary. Neo-Nazi. You would have seen the, the warlords from the Russian Civil War that appointed themselves gods, you know, 
in the East. Yeah, exactly. You would have seen those people basically just fighting each other for, like, you know, Russia, basically. Like, fascism probably would have a Russian name, is what I always... Yeah, that's a Trotsky quote, right? Uh, Fascism would be a Russian word if we didn't win. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, it does make sense. Yeah, it's true, but, you know... Like, the Bolsheviks literally had to defend the professional government from a coup. It would have fallen. Oh, well, yeah, that happened with the Kornilov affairs. Basically, yeah. it was going to an attempted right wing coup against the, the government, and the Bolsheviks ended up, you know, sending their Red Guards to suppress it. And so that basically won them a lot of support from the population. And actually, that's actually a kind of an interesting argument about anti fascism and, like, you know, how we orient mm. ourselves towards it. Because a lot of the popular support they won was by, like, you know, protecting, basically protecting Russia from reactionaries. And, like, they got a lot of support from Jews because they protected, you know, people from pogroms. And so it's it's an interesting uh, situation. Yeah, we're stuck with the nation when looking at the Russian Revolution. I mean, there was a national aspect to it, though, because you did have an empire that was collapsing and it needed to be reorganized in some way. Unless without the common turn, you know, spreading world revolution, you really do increasingly just become a nation state. Can I just read like the last few paragraphs? Yeah, go for it. All right. I mean, I like, I guess there's a postscript, but I don't know if that counts. In the end, he does kind of basically sum up his thesis. He goes, to the right of Kotsky and international socialism, there are trends such as Socialist Monthly in Germany, Jure's followers in Vanderveld in France and Belgium. I'm not going to read all these people, but it basically goes, all these gentry who play a tremendous, very often predominant role in the parliamentary work and press of their parties repudiate outright the dictatorship of the proletariat and pursue a policy of undisguised opportunism. In the eyes of these gentry, the dictatorship of the proletariat contradicts democracy. There is really no essential distinction between them and the petty bourgeois Democrats. Taking this circumstance into consideration, we are justified in drawing the conclusion that the second international, that is, the overwhelming majority of its official representatives, have completely sunk into opportunism. The experience of the commune has not only been ignored but distorted. Far from inculcating in the workers' minds the idea that the time is nearing when they must act to smash the old state machine, replace it by a new one, and in this way make their political rule the foundation for the socialist reorganization of society, they've actually preached to the masses the very opposite and have depicted the quote-unquote conquest of power in a way that has left thousands of loopholes for opportunism. The distortion and hushing up of the question of the relation of the proletarian revolution to the state could not but play an immense role at a time when states, which possess a military apparatus expanded as a consequence of imperialist rivalry, have become military monsters which are exterminating millions of people in order to settle the issue as to whether Britain or Germany, this or that finance capital, is to rule the world. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. I want to say, like, he's very critical of Kotsky in this, and especially towards the end of this. Like, he's brutal towards Kotsky. Like he says, um, Kotsky abandons Marxism for the opportunist camp for this destruction of the state machine, which is utterly unacceptable to the opportunist, completely disappears from his arguments. And he leaves a loophole for them in that quote-unquote conquest may be interpreted as a simple acquisition of a majority. And he also says, Kotsky acts like an outright swindler by evading the perfectly well-known arguments of Marx and Engels on the commune of plucking out a quotation which has nothing to do with the point at the issue. And so basically he's saying, you know, it's, it's as early as 1902, I think. He says that Kotsky kind of starts messing up on the state and not actually emphasizing the importance of the commune state enough. But I think that's, a, that's actually a very legitimate critique of Kotsky because if you read the affair program, I don't think it really does have a good, good enough of a, a real vision for like a, you know, a, a proletarian republic or whatever you want to call it in there. Right, so because like Kotsky's idea was, you know, the SPD would take power once they had like enough of a majority to enact the minimum program. Well, that was basically the plan as I understand it, correct? Yes. Basically, the idea was that, you know, they would build up the party and get as much of a majority as possible and kind of win against out against the bourgeoisie in a war of attrition and kind of create a state within the state. And once they had enough of a majority, they would basically seize control of parliament and then from there create a kind of a workers republic. Was there like a component of, you know, like developing militias in order to deal with the inevitable 
you know, like military putsch or whatever that would follow. Yeah, especially the left wing of the party, like really agitated hard for the uh, people's militia because I was part of their minimum program as well. They they kind of started forming like the nucleus for one within the party. But then basically, World War One happens, and that was just being like, oh well, the bourgeois militaries, you know, that's all we need. Like they completely give up on that. Obviously, I don't know. I wonder why Kotsky never really grasp fully the, the the lesson that Lenin or maybe Lenin's wrong and he actually Kotsky does grasp this and he just is kind of the only picking and choosing the Kotsky that is like not you know what he likes uh well I th- I think that Kotsky isn't as thoroughly compromised as Lenin is putting forward Kotsky has all these tactical considerations that we can still learn quite a bit from but I tend to think that this this is the point that Lenin is crucifying him on for a reason. The fact that Lenin is using Panakuk to attack him on this really says a lot, I think, about where we end up, you know, as people that are reading Kautsky through Lenin, reading Lenin through Kautsky, and trying to synthesize a better Marxism out of the wreckage of the 20th century. And you mentioned Panakuk and Kautsky's controversy with Panakuk. He basically says Panakuk is correct. He says... Although Panikuk's exposition lacks precision and concreteness, not to speak of other shortcomings of his article which have no bearing on the present subject, Kautsky sees precisely on the point of principle raised by Panikuk. And on this fundamental point of principle, Kautsky completely abandoned the Marxist position and went wholly over to opportunism. It's in this controversy, is not Kautsky, but Panikuk, who represents Marxism, for it was Marx who taught that the, that the proletariat cannot simply win state power in the sense that the old state apparatus passes into new hands, but must smash this apparatus, must break it and replace it by a new one. Like that's where he really he uses panic hook to make that point. And apparently Lenin, he didn't think this at first. Like, you know, he had to be won over to these positions, like Bukharin especially. So I think it really shows how much Lenin was a Kotskyist and how hard it was to get him to stray from Kotsky's positions. Yeah, even the very statist vision of the economy, and I say this, you know, with some trepidation, but the very statist vision of the economy that he puts forward, because I think it's fair to say that we're more skeptical of state takeovers of every industry and Lenin's description in chapter five of factory discipline for everyone in all industries owned by the state. Yeah, I mean, that stuff is really outdated, too. But I mean, part of me wants to say that I understand why Lenin would argue for factory discipline, because essentially the proletarian state is a machine created by the proletariat that wage war against its enemies. And that does require discipline and centralism. I mean, understand. It doesn't mean that you have to destroy all democratic rights. I can see why Lenin would say that. I don't really think it shows that he really just was this, you know, guy who wanted to oppress the workers, you know? No, 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 not at all. But it shows the kind of Lasallian heritage of Kautsky that comes yeah. through on Lenin. That's yeah. all. And I don't know, like, Panikok is such an interesting case. Here, Lenin is saying that Panikok defends Marxism over Kautsky. Panikok is basically the founder of, you know, a distinct anti-state Marxist political tendency. And I think that's a fascinating historical development. It's the one Chomsky actually can get behind. I think he wrote, like, an intro to uh, one of Panikok's books. Yeah, he does, but he ruins Panikuk by like trying to make Panikuk just look like an anarcho-syndicalist, basically. Well, he's basically an anarcho-syndicalist who's a Marxist. Like, exactly. there's no difference whatsoever. But like Panikuk, even in his later years when he became really counselly, like wasn't really an anarchist and wrote like the polemics against anarchism. It's a valuable tradition that we can we can incorporate into our synthesis. Like an important thing to be thinking about, considering the way. Marxism went in the 20th century and the problems it had relating to the state and putting too much trust in the bourgeois state or just the form of the state that was supposed to have been the dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah, exactly. Because in the course of the Russian Civil War, new forms of state power are basically formed. And these forms of state power become the model for the international communist movement to organize. But it's this extremely militaristic, top-down kind of form of party organization where the party is seen as the general staff of the proletariat, basically. And the proletariat is just the, the army, basically. Like It's that kind of like vision of the party that you get in the common turn. 
And and exactly, and it does become adopted. And so again and again and again, these states modeled off of the failed, at that point, USSR, become solidified as most people's understanding of what communism is. But I think it's such a contrast that one of the things we're highlighting as the crux of Lenin's argument is he talks about smashing the bourgeois state. He talks about the need to basically, among other things, abolish the police. That is a much different Lenin than we're presented with in the history books very often. What he literally says at one point is, uh, if the workers voluntarily unite their armed forces, there will be centralism. But it will be based on the complete destruction of the centralized state apparatus, the standing army, the police, and the bureaucracy. Which, you know, that's a very particular prescription, I think. Did we bring up the fact that, like, most, like, Americans end up reading what is to be done in, like, college and not read State and Revolution? What is to be done is, like, an inter-party polemic. And State and Revolution is, like, an actual Marxological theoretical text. It's stupid to read what is to be done without having historical context. It's an ideological choice. You know, Lenin considered what is to be done to be outmoded almost as soon as he wrote it. State and Revolution was more of a like a, a work of lasting importance for, for good reasons and for bad reasons, you know, as serving as a negative example of like how th- things diverged from where he thought things were going to go. I think Lars Lynn actually brings that up in like the introduction for rediscovering Lenin. It's the opening quote. It's Lenin being like, yeah, this text isn't really that fucking important. It's already, it's too old already. I wonder how much of that has to do with the title where it's just like you have like young college students like, yeah, man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they're like on the shelf, oh, what is to be done? Okay, here we go. You open it up and... Do you, ever, do you guys ever see Marxist academics who really slyly work in references to that sort of sentence structure you know, they'll they'll just yeah. either what is to be done or some variation on it, and you just sort of feel them awkwardly elbowing you when they say it. <laughs> the tendency to name drop it so often, and what that means about the way we look at it as an important text versus like, like statement uh, evolution. If you're someone who's completely new to Marxism and are taking a class on it, and they give you what is to be done, this shit is just not going to make sense to you because you have to have the context of Russian social democracy and Marxist theory. You know, what is economism? Who are these economists he's ranting about? And it's just like, pick what quote sounds the most authoritarian from Lenin and, you know, yeah, I tried to read it out of context a long time ago, and I was just kind of put it down, and I was like, okay, whatever. Okay, yeah. yeah. Like, that's the impression I got reading it, but I guess some people plow through and get something out of it, so. He really does do a masterful job of kind of taking what is to be done and putting it in context in order to give it a historical meaning. And it would be, happy, it would be cool to kind of do that similar to Stay in Revolution, Stay in Revolution in context. And it would be. What are the different factions of the Bolshevik Party? What are the positions on the state? better position as the Soviets, because the Bolshevik party is still a multifactional democratic mass organization at this point. Even though it's operating under heavy repression, it still does have an internal culture of debate. Lars Lee, if you're listening, we're probably too lazy to do it. So come on, come on. Yeah, please help us, Lars. <laughs> You're our only hope. Um, just to bring this back to the text a little bit, since we are the prime neo-Kaut mouthpiece, I feel like a bit of a, a knee-jerk urge to defend Kautsky, but actually I think it, it feeds pretty well into the discussion of the failure of the Russian Revolution, especially when Kautsky is defending the need to like maintain certain parts of the state apparatus, and Lenin's kind of making fun of him. There is the question of what's called the deep state, which is like, vague institutional structure of persons and practices. It's the overall inertia that the state runs on beyond the formal institutions. And this is, of course, going to be a very important concept when trying to create basically a deep state without a state in communism. That's for the proletariat. But we have to deal with this, you know, deep capitalist state. Perhaps what Kautsky is really getting at more so than, oh, no, we couldn't dismantle the bureaucracy. That would be bad. It would be something along the lines of, oh, you think you're just going to dismantle that shit overnight? Really? Like the bourgeois state? You can't dismantle that shit overnight. And the proletariat needs to kind of develop its own forms of rule that can counterpose the bourgeois rule before it actually takes power. 
I think is what Kotsky's getting at. You know, he's saying you don't have these institutional alternatives to the old state bureaucracy. Soviets aren't going to cut it. I guess, yeah, Kotsky does have a legitimate point. Like Lenin argues for at least the part that I'm looking at, like a trifecta. You got the standing army, the police, and the bureaucracy. Seems like at least two of those you can get rid of, like pretty much straight full stop. You you would pretty much have to because they'd be the primary agents of counter-revolution. Yeah, there are definitely parts of the state you can just lob off pretty quickly. But, you know, like the civil servants who run the sewers and keep, you know, you know everything running, a lot of them are relatively, you know, privileged and have pretty high salaries and aren't really proletarians. They're just skilled laborers who are needed. And so you're still going to have to get those people to work for you initially until you can develop a better structure. This sounds like a good segue into chapter five. So, yeah, what did you want to say about chapter five? When I was first becoming a Marxist and trying to understand what the fuck a dictatorship of the proletariat is and what socialism and communism are and why Stalin had it wrong or yada yada, this is one of the first things that I read. Yeah, the question of how the state can wither away, what is what does all this mean? I think like this chapter in particular gives us a lot to chew on. I want to read a bit from section two of chapter five, the transition from capitalism to communism. Um, The dictatorship of the proletariat, that is the organization of the vanguard of the oppressed as the ruling class for the purpose of suppressing the oppressors, cannot result merely in an expansion of democracy simultaneously with an immense expansion of democracy, which for the first time becomes democracy for the poor, democracy for the people, and not democracy for the money bags. The dictatorship of the proletariat imposes a series of restrictions on the freedom of the oppressors, the exploiters, the capitalists. We must suppress them in order to free humanity from wage slavery. Their resistance must be crushed by force. It is clear that there is no freedom and no democracy where there is suppression and where there is violence. Engels expressed this splendidly in a letter to Babel when he said, as the reader will remember, that the proletariat needs the state not in the interests of freedom, but in order to hold down its adversaries. As soon as it becomes possible to speak of freedom, the state as such ceases to exist. Democracy for the vast majority of people and suppression by force, i.e. exclusion from democracy of the exploiters and oppressors of the people. This is the change democracy undergoes during the transition from capitalism to communism only in communist society when the resistance of the capitalists have been completely crushed, when the capitalists have disappeared when there are no classes, i.e. when there is no distinction between members of society as regards their relation to the social means of production, only then the state ceases to exist and it becomes possible to speak of freedom. Only then will a truly complete democracy become possible and be realized, a democracy without any exceptions whatsoever, and only then will democracy begin to wither away. Kind of a long quote. I'll even add more because it says only then will democracy begin to wither away owing to the simply fact that freed from capitalist slavery, from the ultimate horror, savagery, absurdities, and infamies of capitalist exploitation, people will gradually become accustomed to observing the rules of social intercourse that have been known for centuries and repeated for thousands of years and all copybook mansions. So basically, yeah, he's basically saying, you know, people won't need an oppressive force, an oppressive specialized force in order to maintain social order because you know, people will develop in a new way. What I really want to stress about this is the relationship of democracy to the dictatorship of the proletariat. I think it's interesting and provocative that he says, it is clear that there is no freedom and no democracy where there is suppression and when there is violence. I don't know if that's strictly true because there are parts here that, you know, Lenin looks at the societies that we live in and say, these are full democracies. I mean, I think that there's a little bit of provocativeness there. Like, obviously, there's the under Lenin understands that, like, a capitalist democracy is better than monarchy. He understood that, you know, just because the state isn't completely withered away doesn't mean that we don't have any democracy at all. Like the yeah. vision that he presents is kind of basically the state becoming so democratic while simultaneously excluding the bourgeoisie that eventually it just becomes the mere administration of things. It yeah. no has a coercive role to play in society. So not even like a worker's militia is necessary anymore. It really is no coercive body of you know armed people that keeps social order together. 
Yeah, and there there is a very clear trajectory of the organization of force in society if we want to look at the state through that lens, particularly where the proletariat subjects that once subjected to the control of a minority power to the control of the majority, but eventually makes it superfluous by the elimination of class society through it. Yeah, and that's really what Lenin is arguing, that what makes this impossible to abolish a state is the abolition of class society. But until you abolish class society, state power will still have a role because there will be remnants. Like communism doesn't come out of capitalism completely free of, you know, the birthmarks of the old order, you know. And so there's still going to be like a need for a state. But what we can do is have it be a state controlled by the workers that acts in the interest of the workers. Yeah, I think it's important to call this thing a state. I don't like a lot of the language games around whether it's a state or not. It reminds me of 1984, where they say, oh, we don't have any laws. We just all know what to do. Lenin actually uses the term, I'm going to defend it, semi-state here. I think there is a certain legitimacy to it, because it's not a game in that Lenin demonstrates a sincere belief that there is something fundamentally different in character about the quality of a workers' republic, even down to the extension of democracy to universality i don't know that that contradicts what you're saying exactly to be honest no no i don't i don't think it does but i would just qualify that that's what the proletarian state is it's a state unlike any other historically and it's a state that's trying to undermine the basis of its own existence if it's acting properly if it's a proper workers republic it is acting to undo the basis of its own existence the language game that anarchists play where it's like well if it's federalized and if it's workers militias it's not really a state because it's decentralized like that that is problematic in my opinion because they're not recognizing that as a state and therefore something that needs to wither away and if you can't tell that as a state you're not going to be able to abolish it like anarchists basically if they ever really had their way they would basically just create the state in a more democratic way most like you know real like anarchist proposals from serious classical anarchists do basically sound like state and revolution Hence the, the value, I think, of the, the term semi-state. I, I, do, I do think that there's legitimacy to it, but I also have to say I agree that a semi-state is a state. And so... Right. So why the game? Because when we look at number three, the first phase of communist society, for a lot of readers of Marx that want to read out the theory of the transition, the dictatorship of the proletariat as a state, this, is, this has got to be a painful read. Because not only is there some kind of state, but the state makes use of something that's kind of like bourgeois right, bourgeois law. Hard for me to swallow that we shouldn't call this a state. And maybe the the difference between the first phase of communism and the final phase of communism is the disappearance of the state. Yeah, I think you won't really have the full disappearance of the state until you have high-level communism internationally. I mean, that might like be its definition even, right? I think, like I said, the semantical game does matter because if we're going to get rid of this thing called the state, we need to have a theory why it's possible to get rid of the state. To have a theory of why it's possible to get rid of a state, you have to look at why does the state exist. It exists because class contradictions make it so society can't be integrated. So if we want to get rid of the state, you know, we have to do it this way. In a way, it's almost like anarchism that's extremely theoretically advanced because it's saying, all right, if we want to do it this way with the state, this is what we have to do. And these things have to happen. I mean, the state is class role, essentially. It's sort of the force in which one class dominates another or a series of other classes. Like it's the stick, you know, it's the legitimate violence of one class over another. It's definitely a question of force. The Weberian definition of the state, that the state is just a monopoly on force, is wrong because with that definition, you basically, or you would say that feudalism, the state doesn't exist because there's just fights between lords within the domain of the monarch. Well, yeah, Weber is saying legitimate. It's the monopoly of legitimate use of force. And so yeah. those those conflicts would be over, you know, who has the legitimate right to use force. It's who has the general means of coercion. Does, you know, it doesn't mean that they have the only means of coercion and a complete monopoly, but they have the general means of coercion to the point 
where they can impose capitals to pay taxes to them. Protection racket that is able to present itself as something more of a protection racket. More than a protection racket, isn't that the legitimacy that Weber's talking about? I don't. I mean, that definition of the state is influenced by Marxism. Weber was an SPD member, you know, for all his sins against Marxism. Doesn't Lenin explicitly talk about how like democracy wouldn't exist towards later on, like in the latter stage of communism, because there wouldn't be a need for force, and democracy relies on like force, like forcing the will of the majority against the minority, that sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah. also the, the transition from the rule of law to sort of the general administration of things more organically by society as well. We kind of end up with the uncomfortable conclusion here that, okay, if the state is an instrument of class rule, and then if there's a dictatorship of the proletariat period that let's say it lasts from the end of capitalism into the first stage of communism. And you have this instrument of class rule that outlives the existence of the bourgeoisie. That adds up to the first phase of communism has a proletarian state that uses its majoritarian force to keep parts of the proletariat in line, like that the proletariat is policing itself. I just, I don't have a problem with that. Just, I accept that the state has a necessary historical role. And I think that we need to look at it from that angle. I just think that the way that Marxists talk about this needs to be a lot more honest. May the dictatorship yeah, of the proletariat be short-lived and successful. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be reading The Social Revolution by Karl Kautsky. If you want to write us, you can send us an email at swampsidechats at gmail.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you want to support the show, you can leave us a good review on iTunes, if indeed that's what you use. We've got a Facebook page now. So if you don't use iTunes, you can now help us out by clicking the icon featuring a small white hand extending its thumb towards the heavens, an icon which regularly appears on the Facebook ideological apparatus, if you like. And now we've reached the apologies section. Apologies for the buzzing sound that you may have noticed throughout the first quarter of the show. Our computers were trembling in ecstasy like a colony of shakers in early honkified New England every time we exposed them to the light of pure, unmediated truth. We eventually ceased the verificatory vibrations entirely by suggesting that the prohibitionist anarchists of the Spanish Revolution had a situationist-style, booze-fueled vision of revolution. And for that, dear listeners, I, Lexi, am sorry. And I like Libertarias, okay? It's like the anarchist version of Reds. Anyway. Until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.